0: Alleluia, Alleluia, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Alleluia. The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the fifth chapter. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into the, one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. When they brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. This is the gospel of the Lord be seated. God's beloved people, grace to you and peace from God, our creator, and from our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Several years ago, I read a passage in a book by Episcopal priest Barbara Brown Taylor that really captured me. If you've read Taylor, you know how capable she is when describing her experiences from the most transcendent to the most mundane. She writes frequently about her childhood, much of which was spent outdoors, walking through tall grasses, sleeping under stars. Even as a young person who didn't know how to name it, she had the sense that creation was alive with the holy, charged with the grandeur of God, as one poet famously wrote. She grew up, got an Ivy League education, became an ordained priest and a published author. She noticed with sadness how easily the natural world slipped into the background of a busy adult life, something one traveled through on the way from one seemingly urgent commitment to another, a backdrop of sorts. Taylor's words struck me because I recognized myself in them. How easily the natural world can slip into the background for me, as if the trees and the mountains, the bodies of water, the soil, the other creatures, are merely set design, stage props for the drama of human life that takes place among them. Now, I'm a nearsighted person, literally, without corrective lenses. I can only see what is right in front of me. When I read Taylor's words, I realized that if I am not careful, this myopia extends to my relationship with creation. I may be able to see what is directly in front of me, but I miss the broader landscape in which I live with all creatures, great and small. And if I'm honest, I think this nearsightedness has shaped the way I have read and interpreted scripture in the past. The Bible is filled with stories and images of creation. It begins and ends in a garden. Along the way are majestic mountain peaks, star-spangled heavens, seas, trees, animals two by two, vineyards, lilies, sparrows, the list goes on and on. Is all of this just backdrop? Something we Christians drive by quickly on our way to the Jesus story? Or does creation, even non-human creation, have something important to teach us about God? Could it be that the love of God expressed in Jesus is the same love that brought the world into being and sustains it each day? For these next four Sundays, we are going to slow down and take notice of the natural world as it is depicted in Scripture. Creation is alive with God's being, so we are going to take time to focus, to take note of what we see and hear, beginning with today's texts, our Old Testament and Gospel stories. In the Old Testament reading, we meet Job, a man whose story has been retold and reinterpreted in every age. Job was a righteous and prosperous man who lived a well-ordered life in which blessings abounded. Then suddenly, due to no fault of his own, he lost everything, his property, his family, his health. He entered the pit of suffering. We know this can happen, don't we? no matter how protected or privileged you are. Job didn't turn his back on God, but he was filled with questions for God. Why is this happening? What did I do to deserve this? This doesn't make any sense. Explain yourself, God. Job asks questions about God's providence and God's justice. Up to this point, he had been pretty sure that he knew the way things worked. And this wasn't it. For 36 chapters of weeping and wailing, God is silent. And when God does speak, they're not the words I expect. I would expect God to recite a psalm of comfort for Job. Or to remind him of his ancestors in faith who had also suffered and yet persevered. But this isn't what happens. Instead, God speaks from a whirlwind and points, Job, to the majesty of creation. Look around you, God says to Job. Open your eyes. There is more going on in heaven and earth than you have dreamt of. Okay, that's Shakespeare, not God, but pretty much the same idea. (laughs) Heads up, Job. Who do you think is the source of all of this? Did you lay the foundation of the universe? Put its footings in place? Did you wrap the sea in a cloudy garment and fix its limits? Have you entered the storehouses of snow and hail and directed lightning bolts to their ground? In verse after verse of soaring poetry, God recalls the beauty and the grandeur of the universe. And God reminds Job that just as he would never be able to comprehend the universe, he would never be able to comprehend the mind of God. And yet, in the grandeur of creation, Job could see something of God. God's creativity and power God's beauty and imagination. Job could see God's ongoing faithfulness and providence. The sheer scale of God's work brought Job to a place of awe and reverence, and it moved him to deeper trust in this one who is the author of everything and yet drew near to him and listened to his cries Job was moved to trust this one who had graciously woven him into a much larger story. If the root of wisdom is knowing how much you don't know, Job grew wise as a result of this sacred encounter with God in the whirlwind. I think the same is true of the fishermen we meet in the gospel story. I try to picture these guys, the expression on their faces as Jesus got into one of their boats and they put off out to shore, out from shore. I don't know, maybe Jesus had some nautical experience that I'm not aware of. It's one thing to borrow a boat in order to better position yourself for public speaking on a lake. It's another thing to start giving fishing advice. These were seasoned fishermen, after all, confident in their trade, So when this landlubber teacher told them where to position their nets, I can only imagine their skepticism. But we know what happens, and it is not what they expect. More fish than they can handle. Fish that would be a source of food and income. Fish that would also be for them a sign of the abundance of the kingdom of God. Jesus had a marvelous way of connecting the gifts of nature with the gifts of God. Creation was his classroom. When he looked at fish and fishermen, sheep and shepherds, vine and branches, wheat and weeds, when he looked at creation, he saw the reign of God, living, verdant, growing, So often in popular culture, God's kingdom is depicted as an ethereal, otherworldly place where we all float around with harps. But for Jesus, God's kingdom was found in a boatload of flopping fish, in seeds tossed lavishly on soil and rock and into thorn bushes. God's kingdom was found in his own body and blood, and it was shared with others through simple earthy gifts of bread and wine. Jesus had eyes to see and ears to hear the reign of God all around him in the wonder of creation. And so I pray today that by the power of the Spirit we may also be given eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that each time we behold Mount Rainier or look at the Cascades or the Olympics, we may be comforted by the strength and the steadfastness of God. Each time we cross the Narrows Bridge or board a ferry and see the vast expanse of water, I pray that we may feel nourished and renewed as if we are traveling through baptismal waters, alive with the Spirit of God. I pray that as we go about our daily lives, we would recognize that the love of God poured out for us in Jesus is the same love that blossoms and shines and flows all around us, a sacred love, a sacred gift. Thanks be to God. Amen.